0: come this morning to continue in our study on the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What Christ delights in is His sacrifice that takes away our sin and reconciles us to a holy God and justifies us declaring us perfect before God in Christ and rescues our bodies from sin and death and corruption. The ultimate expression of Christ's joy in his redeeming work at Calvary is laid down in Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 2, where we are exhorted to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is the basis and ground of our faith. Indeed, the cause of our faith wrought in us by the Holy Ghost. Even our faith, which Christ is the author and finisher of, is God's gift and not of our own self-generation or maintenance. Praise God, Christ has finished the work of the cross for us. As He died at Calvary, He declared it is finished. All that we hope for... The deposit of our faith is fulfilled in and by Christ, His saving us, His blood justifying us, His mighty work in us, transforming us into His image, and His raising us up from the dead. Christ was motivated at Calvary by the joy that was set before Him. That joy we have described in glorious detail, a joy in our rescue, in His carrying out the duties of that priesthood which God appointed to Christ by an unchangeable and everlasting oath. But Christ also joyed in His promised resurrection, as laid forth in Psalm 16 and other places, the promised exaltation which took place when He ascended to glory, and the glory of His sacrifice that forever took away our sin. Because that joy was anticipated by Christ, He endured the cross and counted its shame and humiliation as nothing to compare with. That is a remarkable truth since the cross was no mere pro forma event. It was the most detestable terror that any man could go through. On the cross, Christ was treated as guilty for our sins laid on Him. He was required to take them as His own, though He Himself is forever sinless. Jesus was made a curse there for us and in our place. He was subject to all of God's promised wrath and judgment for the sinners He died to save. Indeed, Christ was forsaken by God unto judgment there, He whom God loves eternally and infinitely. There was no hope for deliverance for Jesus as He suffered there for us until He lay in the grave awaiting the resurrection that was promised to Him. All of this was on top of the excruciating physical torment Jesus suffered, the cruelty that His own creatures inflicted upon Him, their Creator. Imagine that the one who created all things and gives life to everything that lives should himself be subject to death and surrender that which is most valuable to all men, life itself. All this anguish was set forth by the Spirit of Christ in Psalm 22, Psalm 40, and Psalm 69, and other places, but two texts in the Gospels relate how Christ expressed His distress in His humanity at what He was about to endure to save us. In John 12, when the Gentiles start to inquire about Christ, Jesus told how His soul was troubled at the prospect of His dying. Yet Christ was clear that there was no other way to bring life to His people without His dying for us. He might have asked His Father to save Him from that hour, but no, that hour's terror was the very reason why He had come to that hour in the first place. Then in Gethsemane, the night He was betrayed, Jesus told His disciples that His soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in His agony at the prospect. He prayed desperately that if it were possible this cup might pass away from Him, But if it must be that he must suffer thus for the accomplishing of his great work of redemption, let God's will be done. There was no other way his people could be rescued from judgment and everlasting torment. No doubt Christ was in agony at the prospect not of the death in itself, but rather at the dread of being made sin for us and treated as guilty in our place. How could any man who knows the true wrath of God for sin be any way other than terrified at such a prospect. It was the moral guilt to be laid on Him and discharged upon Him, the only innocent one, that was the horror of it all. And yet Christ knew that it would be His glory for all eternity that He had done this in obedience to God, to delight to do His will. And with the joy set before Him in it all to save His loved ones, you and me, And so it was the fulfillment and completion of Christ's delight to do God's will when He suffered and died there. But note that we are exhorted to follow after Christ's example as our model to regard His endurance of the worst possible pain and sorrow for the joy set before Him as how we should respond to trouble and heartaches and terrors of our own. We are to anticipate the joy Christ has set before us and lay hold of it by faith and face every trial like Jesus did. Whatever we face, it won't be anything near as bad as what Jesus faced for us at Calvary, which makes it all the more poignant that Jesus, who had done nothing amiss, suffered far greater than His poor sinful ones, while we receive all the benefits of Christ's suffering. He suffered all that was due to us so that we might be rescued from all that suffering. That fact brings joy to Christ and joy to us and gives us courage to endure to the end, looking unto Jesus, looking to His joy, and how the prospect of that joy powered Him through to the end of glory. So too must we glory in Christ's joy and the cause of it, as He did the work of the priesthood that God appointed unto Him thereby comforting us with great comfort and rejoicing. Now, the writer of Hebrews next draws the logical conclusions of that Old Testament text that God delights not in animal sacrifices, but that Christ rather delights to do God's will in offering up Himself as the one-time sacrifice for sin. Recall that in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer has explicitly set forth that it is the one-time death of the Lord Jesus, His blood shedding, that saves people from their sin and not the animal sacrifices. Hebrews 9 at verse 11, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then at verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what Christ accomplished when he delighted to do God's will has already been laid down as to its purpose and work that he made himself a sacrifice to take away our sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, then at verse 8, we read this part where the writer begins to draw out the logical conclusions. We used some of the same arguments he did already, but it befits us to read them and to think of them again. He writes, Above when he said, that is, when Christ said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, that is, Christ, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. So he's recapitulating what the Old Testament text says and what he has already preached at the top of Hebrews chapter 10. When those things were said by Christ, the writer of Hebrews goes on, note how carefully he explains the logical outcome of what Christ said in the olden times in Psalm 40, which he has recapitulated here. Note how he carefully explains the logical outcome to the reader. That's because this is a fundamental truth necessary necessary to understanding how God saves us from our sin and wrath and judgment. It's necessary that we understand how it is that God being dissatisfied with animal sacrifices and sin offerings and Christ then delighting to do God's will, it is necessary that we pin down, nail down in our minds how this is that God saves us from our sin. And what is the result? The next half of verse 9. He taketh away the first. That is, Christ taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Now, what is the first? Animal sacrifices. Offerings for sin. He taketh them away. And then the second. What is the second? that He establishes the will of God that Jesus delights to do in His body. So He's making it very clear that it's not both and. That Christ's sacrifice in His own body is not to be added to the animal sacrifices. No, they're to be taken away. They're to be done away with. And His body being offered and delighting to do God's will in that way is to be the replacement for the animal offerings. And thus Christ establishes, accomplishes, and completes the will of God. he finishes the work of taking away the animal sacrifices and delighting to do God's will. And he does God's will and he finishes the work of doing God's will when He offers up Himself as the sacrifice for sin. Note well, animal sacrifices must be taken away in order to establish God's will unto salvation. They must be taken away. Otherwise, God's will unto salvation cannot be fulfilled. And Christ's delight must be quenched if the animal sacrifices are not taken away. Now remember, this is a polemic written to Jewish believers who are thinking of going back to the animal sacrifices and to the temple worship and walking away from the Lord Jesus and His offering for sin for all sorts of cultural and sociological reasons that they would have to want to go back to something tangible and to their ethnic background and history and ways of doing things. But here the writer is making it clear, no, it is God's will that Christ takes away the animal sacrifices, abolishes them, replaces them by His one-time offering for sin. They must be taken away for God's will to be accomplished. And God's will has been accomplished with the death of Christ. Therefore, the animal sacrifices have been taken away. It's not just that the animal sacrifices are powerless or ineffective to save us or to take away our sin. No, the animal sacrifices must be taken away to establish God's will for our salvation. And you might ask why. Well, one good reason, perhaps because so long as the Jewish believers even thought that animal offerings had any relevance, or efficacy to gospel redemption. They could not fully trust in Jesus' only sacrifice as long as they were adding things to it, as long as they were annexing Christ's sacrifice to the old, traditional, comfortable ways of doing things which God had no delight in. And you might ask yourself, why would they want to continue to do things that were unpleasing to God that He had no delight in? Well, That's part of the polemic of the writer here. He's trying to impress upon them that they must not look fondly back upon the animal sacrifices. They must walk away from them as Christ has, as God has walked away from the animal sacrifices. Notice, ironically, that God would very soon literally, physically take away the animal sacrifices, wouldn't He? And how did He do that? when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. The animal sacrifices were gone. They were completed. They were finished. Whether or not you agreed with what Christ delighted in and what the Father delighted in, whether or not you agreed with the polemic of the writer of Hebrews or the exhortations, they no longer had a choice. Roman violence, force, and the sword had slaughtered countless numbers. Of Jewish people in Jerusalem and had forever obliterated the temple and the animal sacrifices that God no longer took pleasure in. Now this is the irony, isn't it, that the Romans used by God, they were used by God in their evil and malignity to offer up Christ once for all. You see, they played a part in the delight of Christ to do the will of God. That is, they were the instruments by which The sacrifice of Jesus took place on the cross. And they were also the (laughs) instruments by which God literally took away physically the animal sacrifices when they destroyed the temple. This is the reason why people who study the Scriptures closely understand that the purposes of God, which He has ordained from before, the foundation of the world, He carries out through means which include wicked, evil sins committed by grotesquely immoral people. That He uses those means to accomplish glorious ends, glorious saving things which God has ordained for the good of His people. No wonder it says all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. But then the writer of Hebrews to nail down the end of the will of God, that is the fulfillment, the accomplishing of it, it being the saving of his loved ones by the sacrifice of Christ, the writer adds this conclusion at verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he's saying here that, that by that will which Christ delighted to do in His body as an offering for sin, by that will by which God determined to overthrow the animal sacrifices and to exalt the sacrifice of His dear Son as the only means for the saving of His people, by the blood of the Lamb, by the which will, that will that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks, months, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the end of the will of God that Christ delighted in was that we should be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Remember in chapter 9, we read the verse that said that if the outward flesh of a person can be sanctified by the blood of bulls and of goats. But the inward part, the conscience, can never be sanctified by the offering of an animal sacrifice. So here, in the same way, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're purified, not just outwardly in ceremonial things, but more importantly, inwardly as to our guilt and shame over our sin, as to God's view of whether we've been cleaned or not. Christ's sacrifice sanctifies the Lord's people who trust in Jesus, and it's by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the will of God is that Christ should overthrow and replace the animal sacrifices and should make a one-time offering for the sanctification of His people who've called upon Him in truth and the taking away of their sin forever and for all time. That is the will of God. That is the outcome of the will of God in this process which we have been discussing. So we are set apart to God. We're made holy by the one-time offering of Christ's body for us in a way, in a profound way that animal offerings could never achieve. So God's will is doing away with the animal sacrifices and replacing them with the sacrifice of Christ made as our high priest. And it was to the end of saving His people from their sin and judgment and death. It was to the end that the Lord's people would be sanctified in and out, made clean, declared to be without fault, justified, as you might put it, by the death of Jesus. Now the will of God is not like our wills. We think that we desire this and we're going to do that. And we're going to accomplish that. And we're going to bring about this and that and so forth. And we may and we may not. Why is that? Because we are weak and temporal, and we grow old and we die. But God is all-powerful. God gets His will done. Don't you ever think that God's will is not going to be accomplished or that He's going to slip and fall or that somebody's going to stand up at the last minute and stop Him from getting His will done. Now, this ought to be a comfort to us, and yet there are many Christians who hate it. They hate the teaching of that because... We should be allowed to have a say in all this and we should be able to overthrow God's will. After all, we have a free will that we should be able to exercise and God should just stand by and wait to see what we agree to go along with. That's not what the Scriptures teach. This will of God, which Christ delighted to do, it is as foregone a conclusion as the birth of a child. There ain't nothing you can do to stop it. And you can squeeze and you can grunt and you can cry out and you can shift around, but you can't stop a natural delivery of a child. It's going to happen sooner or later. And God's will is not like our will. He gets His will done in the end whether we want it or not. But this is the will we ought to want. This is a beautiful, glorious will that He wills to save us and to sanctify us by the death of Christ. And yet there are people who object to that. No, it's gotta be our will. We have to decide. Well, of course, that's heresy and it's not taught by the scriptures. And it borders on blasphemy the more people push it. Christ had previously guaranteed the will of God in the saving of His people. Now, we discussed this a few Lord's days ago. But it bears to be underlined. We read that passage in John chapter 6 where Christ is talking about being the bread of life and people trusting in Him and believing on Him. And then at John 6 at verse 37, we read those glorious words, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, the, the purpose for the distinction between Christ's will in his humanity and God's will who sent him to carry out his will and purpose He came down from heaven not to do His own will, but the will of Him that sent me. You see, he's stressing that this will that he's pledging to uphold is not just some frail human will. It's not just some aspiration that men might diligently and fervently desire and plot and scheme to bring about. No, this is a will of Almighty God the Father that cannot be broken. And that Christ will unalterably bring about, bring to pass, regardless of any personal feelings in His humanity that He might have. And as we have seen, He's faithful to do God's will. He delights to do God's will. We need to understand this difference between man's will and God's will. That man proposes, but God disposes. As Robert Burns said, there are many plans that go astray in this world, but none of the plans of God go astray. And here Christ, in this passage, is solemnly committing Himself to His people to accomplish the will of God to save every single person who comes to Him. And why do they come? Because God has given them to Him. God knows who His will is to be saved. And they will surely be saved because Christ will surely carry out the will of His Father. And this is the same will that is being discussed in Hebrews 10, the will of God to save His people by the dying of His dear Son. Now Christ didn't mention at that time, that is in John 6, the great cost to Him of becoming our sacrifice to save us. He didn't mention it. It just stands as given that Christ is going to do everything required to fulfill the will of His Father that He not lose a single one of the people that God has given to Him. Now, Christ didn't mention that high cost, but in Gethsemane, facing His horrible death on the cross, He cried out, didn't He? Not my will, but thine be done. It was very clear in Christ's prayer, and it's been very clear all through His ministry, and Before, back in the pages of the history and the Psalms when the Spirit of Christ disclosed all this, that Christ was always, was always going to go and die for the sin of His people to save them. And that there was no getting around it, that it was the fulfillment and completion of the will of God, and that Christ was unalterably going to accomplish that will of His Father, which He delighted to accomplish. But in Gethsemane, when He made those prayers displaying the anguish of His soul at being made sin for us, He cried out, Not my will, but thine be done. That is the will of God to save His people by the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus had eternally covenanted to perform that will no matter what the cost to Himself would be. I remember when I was a child, we had a brown hymn book that my mom would sing from. It was an old hymn book. And most of the hymns in it we don't have in our hymn books anymore. But I found a copy of it and the words of it were very strongly impressed on me as a very small child. And it's B.B. B. McKinney's hymn about the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps some of you will recall it. And It goes like this. Neath the stars of the night walked the Savior of light. In the garden of dew-laden breeze, where no light could be found, Jesus knelt on the ground, and there He prayed neath the old olive trees. All the sin of us all on the Savior was hurled as He knelt in the garden alone. Here is soul-burdened plea, let this cup pass from Me, even so not My will, Thine be done." May my song ever be of the love proffered me by my Lord all alone on His knees. Praise His wonderful name, He who bore all my blame as He knelt neath the old olive trees. Neath the old olive trees, neath the old olive trees went the Savior alone on His knees, not my will. Thine be done, cried the father's own son, as he knelt neath the old olive trees. So there is another place in the scriptures where Christ had already committed to fulfill the will of his father, which the writer of Hebrews now tells us, was that we should be sanctified by the body of Christ sacrificed for us and in our stead. The work was done at Calvary, and yet the outworking of the saving of the Lord's people takes place in time. The sacrifice is done and complete, but we all come to Christ in time, don't we? One by one, when the Holy Ghost brings us to Christ in faith. And this is the cause of a great deal of confusion amongst people who focus on their own will and who denigrate the will of God as being unalterable, unopposable, and certain to be brought to pass. So the will of God is at once done and still being done. But it is inexorable and will surely be accomplished through time. I don't know if you've thought about that much that from God's perspective, His will has already been accomplished and yet He's perfectly aware and working in time with His creation to bring it about one soul at a time as He brings us unto Christ. In Second Peter 3, Peter lays down this truth of God's will to be completed in time. He answers the question, why is God's judgment against wickedness taking so long? And the answer he gives is at once obvious and should occur to all of us and yet at the same time is glorious and tells us something about the determination of God to accomplish His will, not just in His own mind, but actually in this concrete world as time progresses. And thirdly, this explanation that Peter gives is then completely mauled by these same people who we've mentioned before who think that it's their will that decides these things, that God only has an aspiration and He's standing by to see what we will agree to. And we read of this in Second Peter 3 where it says, "'Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, "'Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep.'" All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And what he's talking about is he's talking about evil wicked men who scoff at the idea that God's going to bring any justice or judge them because it's been so long so far and nothing's happened. They're like the man who jumps out the skyscraper and passes the 40th floor and says, well, nothing bad's happened yet, you know. They don't see the impending destruction that they face, the fact that God has withheld it thus far makes them conclude that there is no God and He's not going to judge anybody. And then he says this, this they are willingly or ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. He's speaking of the great flood whereby God killed every living creature on the face of the earth except those who were saved in the ark and the ark is a picture of jesus we're shut up in christ and all the waves of death and destruction pound against our savior but they can't reach us he is the one who shelters us from the storm of judgment and destruction And then he says this, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he says these people are ignorant that God did once judge. And when He judged, it was definitive, wasn't it? It was definitive. And he says now He's going to judge again in the future, but He hadn't yet. This time He's going to use fire And notice that it's directed not really at the world per se. It's directed at the judgment and perdition of these ungodly men who are scoffing about God, about His judgment, and about what will happen to them one day. But then look at verse 8. But beloved... Now notice, he's talking about the Lord's people now. And that's the key. And in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward. Notice he's not saying he's long suffering to those wicked people out there, who will be destroyed when the judgment comes. He's long suffering to his people, to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter is describing here. God's long-suffering to His people who He has given to Christ who have not yet come to Christ. They may not have been born yet. And if they've been born, they may still be in their sin. But God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this is just not the will of God that He, he hopes that all of them will. So He's holding out. He's holding off the judgment waiting to see if any more people are going to come to Christ. No, he's holding out the judgment knowing that all of his people who he's given to Christ will come to Christ and awaiting for that time to pass so that they do come to Christ and so that they will all come to repentance and faith. So you see in this text is a description Of why judgment is delayed, it's because of God's will that none of His people perish, but all come to Jesus. That's what He says. So the will of God is bound to be perfected and performed. It is in His mind and it will be concretely in our world when the time comes. Everyone whom God has given to Christ who Christ died for on the cross, will come to Christ even if God has to keep the world in operation until they're born and grow up and at some point the Holy Spirit works in their heart to bring them unto the Savior. He's not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God withholds wrath in this old world so that His will regarding those He gave to Christ might be carried out, that Christ lose not a single one. God would rather endure the scoffing of the wicked in this world than that His will to save us through Christ's death should fail for a single one of us. And so, one by one, Jesus saves us. He saves His people that God gave to Him. Even though in a certain sense, He saved all of His people already, didn't He, when He was crucified. But yet it must be received in time, applied to His people. He will save all the people that God gave to Him, all the sheep that God gave to Him. And this world has lasted this long so that you and I would surely come to Christ and His sacrifice would surely save us and God's will for us would be accomplished through Jesus Christ. Oh, what comfort God has given us by His firm will to save us, which Christ cannot fail to carry out. Well, that is the teaching of these next few verses. And hopefully next Lord's Day we can finish up what we have to say about Hebrews 10, but maybe not. We'll see. But around this table, you see, we celebrate the will of God that Christ delighted to do. And that it's not Some speculative will, it's not a will that might or might not take place depending on the circumstances, depending on our free will, supposedly. It's all about what God has determined to do, what God will do, what He certainly will accomplish, and what there's no going back from as far as Christ is concerned. He is our great comfort because He has been appointed by God by an unchangeable oath to be our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask my father if he would give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The scriptures tell us on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice in this cup which Your Son left us the night He was betrayed. Thank You that He gave thanks for it. He gave thanks for it knowing what it meant. That it meant soon He would shed His precious blood on Calvary's tree for the sins of all of His people that it might accomplish Your will to the saving of Your people, that by that sacrifice He might sanctify all of them whom You had given to Him. And that means we here in this room, we who've trusted in Jesus, He died and shed that blood to save us from our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank You that You provided a lamb to be slain when no other lamb could save. And no other works could save. And no other kindnesses of the heart or thoughts of goodness towards you could save. Only the blood of Jesus can save. And we thank You that You left us this feast and help us to comprehend what the feast symbolizes and what it means that all our life and hope and joy, all our eternity are bound up in the very physical body and blood of Christ that He laid down as an offering To take away our sin. We give You the praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 93 in the black book. Samuel Stennett's great hymn, Majestic Sweetness, sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me he bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. Number 93.